that you're born an Italian If you want your life to be great See that you're born an Italiano And your life will be great Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Italian American Podcast. I'm John Viola. Super excited about this one. I am in the middle of reading a fantastic book, and I am very, very happy to report that we have its author joining us today. But before we get to that, I have two of my best buddies on the line, the notorious P.O.B. Pat O'Boyle and the queen of Italian-American cuisine, Miss Rosella Rago. This is a combination we haven't been able to enjoy in quite some time, so it's good to be back together, guys. Yeah, it's good getting the band back together. I know. This is the greetings from Italian America crew, you know. We're not on the road. I feel like we're not seeing each other that much these days. Yeah, because Pat was too good to come to Louisiana to come to <laughs> the parade in New Orleans. He left me on the float by myself. You, you survived. Was- You're back. You're alive. So it couldn't have been that bad. She almost died, to be fair. The tree fell on her. Yeah. To be fair. Was that a sign? <laughs> I don't know, but a, a legitimate tree fell on her float. A sign of what? A sign of what? <laughs> I don't know. What was it a sign of? That's a deep question. That's a question that's far beyond my pay grade. Like, what was it a sign of? Wait, maybe it was because I was in a white dress on a float. <laughs> now, not, yeah. Ro. You're not on Ro, the maiden's Ro. float anymore, bro. Cut off was 25. <laughs> They let my 35-year-old on there, and I, you know. You're not 35 yet, lady. That's true. Don't rush. It's coming. It's right around the corner that we know. It's been a really wild time. I feel like I've spent the week doing my duty to Italian America and trying to help Ernie Rossi save as much as he can from this you know, for those who don't know, Bernie Rossi, by the way, of E. Rossi and Company in Manhattan's Little Italy, Mulberry Street, one of the oldest Italian businesses in the country, and we're involved with trying to save it. And one of the things that had to be done was to get in and clean out a flooded basement storage unit. You did. This is all John. I did, yeah, I did. I did. Pat was not there. No, Pat opted out. Pat, don't do that. Big, big shout out to John Napoli from Il Reno who came in and helped, and he's been like a machine but I spent three or four days in a hazmat suit, and I got to tell you, I don't know what was down there, you know, mold from the water. and I'll never uh, understand why you're doing this. If I live to be a 1,000, I'll never get it. But we pulled out, you know, some of these documents and records and things that only Ernie's got of, like, the Neapolitan Cinejata and the sheet music. And we pulled out these giant steel records. I've never seen anything like it in my life. They're bigger than any record you've ever seen. And I guess they were... Like, they, they brush on a layer of vinyl. This is from, like, the 20s and 30s and 40s. And they're temp discs. They're the only existent copies of Italian-American radio shows from that era. That They were the actual broadcast discs that would be, you know, played through the radio. And we, we pulled them out of, like, all kinds of places. Thank God they were intact, and we can save them and hopefully get them digitized because the, the insight into where our community was in those years that, that I I'll agree. I mean, I wouldn't have gone to do it. I would have sent somebody else to do it. So you went and did it for me. <laughs> so God bless you, John, because it wasn't going to be my combat, but yeah. like Pasquale COD was probably the absolutely most important Italian American radio program in history. Um, I think it went into the fifties, like from the twenties or thirties into the fifties. Um, there is nothing that we know that's recorded of Pasquale CLD. Oh, maybe we'll find it in Ernie's stuff. If that 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 would be the equivalent of the Rosetta Stone. And I'm I'm not <laughs> trying to be funny with that. That is absolutely the most important 
Pasquale COD was a program that came out of the radio of the New York metro area. And he would do a whole uh, array of characters who would go into his Italian grocery store. And he did impersonations all in different uh, dialects, a.k.a. regional languages. Wow. Everybody knew. Anybody who was born, I would say, before the war um, in the 30s back, they all he was a rock star of that age. And we have nothing, absolutely no recordings of him whatsoever. And honestly, if there is, if Ernie had Pasquale COD, that's Smithsonian quality for us. I can't tell you, like, the stuff we, I mean, this is, you know, Ernie's store, the, the first store, well, the second store, really, I guess, but the big store closed on the corner in 2005. They moved next door. They're still there. And in 2005, they basically had to pack up 100 years of stuff and put it in storage facilities. And so this one storage facility underneath the bakery, unfortunately, had a terrible flood. The landlord's been really difficult and doesn't want to take any responsibility. It's it's horribly litigious. And they only gave us a certain amount of time to get out. And so, you know, we've been going through all this flood ruined stuff. and But much of it was high on shelves. Much of it was okay. A lot of the music, since Rossi started as a music company, and, you know, Ro, I was thinking of you. I've been saving you, like, one-offs of, like, Italian pride sweatshirts from the 80s and 70s. Oh, and my like, God. Oh, You're if you, amongst men, JV. <laughs> let me tell you, if I'd felt confident that you would not get sick and in a hazmat suit, I would invite you down, but I can't condone it. I mean, John and I are taking our own risk doing this, and thank God for him, but man alive, the stuff down there is... I tried. Just, you you got to make it fair to me, to the people yeah, out yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, you went down. You were there for about 30 seconds. Two minutes, and I ran. <laughs> you did It was run. that bad. I really did. I ain't going to lie. I do not like uh, hygienically challenged areas. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's not my thing, and I yeah. run. I run, and I hide. This is a, a major water main burst, and... Mod on it was yeah. The, yeah yeah absolutely yeah a lot of mold and yeah. like the old Italian saying goes better you than me and you gotta understand about me and uh, something about uh, Mr John Buell and I is that we have a passion for like hideous nineteen eighties designs yes of the Italian American persuasion yes like, if we opened like a fashion house it would be all like it would just be the most hideous fashion show you could <laughs> imagine that's right. I, I could just see us having like a label like Viola and Rago and like just taking ourselves really super seriously and like just paying out of our own pocket to be at New York Fashion Week with this like tricolor, you know, like just monstrosity fashion show that your own wife would never come to. Never. Oh, no, you know what? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And I just like make a rainbow cookie dress and John would make like a tricolor blazer and stuff <laughs> and like, you know. Well, you know what? If we're going to do it, the best place to do it would be one of New York's dwindling number of uh, really authentic red sauce joints. And that's another passion that Ro and I share is red sauce joints. And so it was amazing to me to see on my Amazon alerts uh, many, many months ago an upcoming book called Red Sauce, How Italian Food Became American. So I think I was the first guy to jump on the pre-order. And the book came a couple weeks ago, and I've been reading through it and absolutely loving every second of it. And so I'm really, really thrilled that Stephanie was able to bring the author of this book on to join us today. And I'm very happy to invite him in for what I'm sure is going to be an incredible conversation about this uniquely Italian-American cuisine. His name is Ian McCallan, and uh, like I say, he's the author of Red Sauce, How Italian Food Became American. So Ian, welcome to the Italian-American Podcast. 
Hello, how are you guys? Thrilled, thrilled to have the opportunity to catch up. So this, I'm really excited about this. I'm really excited to be here because uh, you know being able to talk about this book is you know something I've been working on for five years, and uh, to be able to bring it out to the world is, is kind of amazing. So I don't want to give away anything proprietary, but I, for the sake of the audience and for my co-hosts, you know, the last name Ian McCallan, but you you set off in the very first page of the book to establish your Italian mother credentials. And I love the story that you tell. Can you tell us about your Italian mom meeting her non-Italian in-laws? Yeah. So, uh, you know, my family is from North Jersey, which is filled with a lot of uh, a lot of people from different uh, nationalities. The motherland. The, the motherland. motherland. But uh, where are you I, from? I got to ask. I'll, I'll interrupt this because this is the most important question. Sure. Well, I'm originally from Ringwood, New Jersey, which is at the top end of Passaic County. Yeah, I know exactly where Ringwood is. The, the Franciscan sisters were there. Yeah, yeah they had a, a whole convent. Which was an Italian order of Capuchin nuns that was founded at Holy Rosary in Jersey City. It was probably the first Italian-American founded order of nuns that had not been founded in Italy. Hmm. I did not know that. Yes. So, yeah, but my parents, my mother was from Clifton, New Jersey, which is another big Italian neighborhood from the Italian section. And my uh, grandfather, he came over as a kid. My, the other side, my uh, grandmother's family came over earlier than that. But my grandmother had died earlier, uh, like when my mother was uh, a girl. So I didn't know many of them except my great-grandfather, um, who died when I was very young. So uh, the original question was how about my parents' meeting or about my parents' uh, encounter with my uh, Irish uh, mother-in-law. Um, so I, essentially when my parents started dating, they had met at one of the Catholic churches, you know, so bring the Catholic people together, so to speak. My father's, you know, nice Irish, uh, Scots Irish boy, his mother decided to cook spaghetti for the, uh, the nice Italian girl who was bringing home. And, uh, so they're, my mother likes to tell the story in different ways. Her future mother-in-law threw the spaghetti against the stove and said, that's how it's done, right? That's how we know. My mother's like, no, well, usually usually I just taste it and that's how I know it's done. But, you know, mm-hmm. uh, the, uh, the Scotch-Irish uh, tradition of boiling everything, it was very strong with my, my uh, grandmother on that side. So, yeah, they were definitely better at mixing cocktails than, than making spaghetti. <laughs> that's, a, that's a whole separate episode. It is sure is. Yeah. Do you know why that is? Well, in what I've read about Irish cuisine is they don't really have a cuisine because they, they have no cuisine. They, they were drinking. Yeah. They I were mean, drinking. That, well, That's it's true. not a, a negative thing. Like they literally were consuming their calories through things like Guinness because they didn't have a lot of calories to have. And yeah. so one way of preserving it was was to ferment it. Yeah. Wow. Ireland's caloric intake was all based on dairy products because it was a country of, of herding sheep. Mm-hmm. Ireland has a funny Ireland has a funny relationship with food, but th- that would be a whole other podcast. <laughs> but it speaks to what we're here to talk about, which is the anthropological evolution of food, right? Because mm-hmm. one thing that we do on this show constantly is defend Italian American cuisine as its own unique subspecies, if you will, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, we, we have so many stories of Italians from Italy criticizing recipes they say, or oh, you can't make this this way, or you know, these, these rules that have somehow developed around Italian food in Italy, I guess, in the past decades. But in truth, you know, food evolves with people, with culture, and particularly in a migratory sense, food's going to evolve a lot. So red sauce, to me, is the sort of encapsulation and the, and the grand arch over everything that is Italian-American. 
How did you come to want to write this book, spend five years pursuing really an anthropological understanding of red sauce? You know, it really, uh, my wife and I were sitting around uh, a Trattoria Spaghetto, which was in the West Village up until it closed in uh, 2019, I think. We were sitting there drinking a uh, cr- uh, carafe of house wine, so you know, bigger than a, a bottle, two of us. So you were a little, little tipsy there. And, you know, we're sitting there thinking, we're, we are talking about, I think at the time we were planning on going to Italy. Um, and we'd both been there before separately, but it was our first time together. Um, but we were talking about the food and how how very different it was going to be. We're going to go to the north of Italy uh, for the first time, which is also very different still today from from southern Italy. And we both were like, well, spaghetti meatballs is clearly not you know, something you would have in Italy. But even like a chicken parm or some of these other things that we had grown up with, that is so much of a part of our everyday uh, lives. Right. Uh, and I was like, so where where did that come from, if not from Italy? Can I just jump in one second? Because I'm absolutely fascinated by this. Yeah. A good friend, a Sicilian historian, Lou Mendel, who's probably the world's number one Sicilian um, historian, who's an American from Rochester, and who's a, a dear friend of the podcast and personally of John and I, he posted the other day on Instagram a cutlet, some sort of cutlet in Sicily that had a melted cheese on top and, a, 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 and oregano spread on top. And his response was, don't let the critics tell you that this stuff did not exist in Italy. <laughs> and, you know, like I know Rosella says, like in Puglia, Puglia will serve little meatballs mm-hmm. with, uh, I'll say, long noodles. Am I correct, Ro? Would you concur with that? No, not in Puglia. They don't serve that with long pasta. But they, they do, do in Caserta, I know. Caserta, they have the... Um... I mean, they do it. It's, it's, it's just, they, they do almost everything that we've seen in Italian America. They do it somewhere in Italy. And when these people come in and try and assert that, that in the entire country of Italy, <laughs> this is not there. Like, they, they try and speak for the cuisine of an entire nation. I was like, who the hell are you? Who, 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 where do you get off with this license? Like, they go off about chicken. Right in in the town of Alberona in Foggia, on festive occasions they kill a chicken and they make a ragu, the gravy sauce, whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. on a Sunday with a chicken in it. Mm-hmm. And then people in Italy go, like, "You cannot have chicken with the pasta." There is one town that has it. <laughs> I'm sure there. Are That's more. why I can't stand. That's why you had to write the book because I can't stand these people. So there's a sauce in Mola di Bari. We make a San Juan sauce, a, a San Giovanni sauce. We call it. But like in Mola di Bari, you finish it with parsley. Mm-hmm. So I made my nonna's marinara sauce is like a hybrid of uh, of Italian and America. She puts garlic and onions in it. Don't it? I, I know Patrick, but I don't know. This is how she does. She's eating. No, but some places put garlic and onion. Not everywhere. It depends on what what region regionally where you are. She's 89. I'm going to tell her you don't do it this way. And then like, and then she finishes it with basil usually, but if she doesn't have basil, she'll throw parsley in it because the San Juan sauce is just garlic, oil, tomato, and parsley at the end. If you don't put parsley at the end, we can't call it a San Juan. So people crucify. Cause I was like, Oh, if you don't have basil, put parsley. they're like, what are you Irish? And I'm like, Whoa, Whoa. It's interesting. You say that because I was cleaning out books in my mother's house a couple months ago. And out came some recipes from my great grandmother. And one of them was very similar. It was garlic oil and parsley and a lot of parsley. And, you know, it all speaks to this idea that, like, this codification around Italian cuisine is insane. But really, like Pat said, here's the man who wrote the book. So, Ian, you just, you're out. You realize the food's going to be different. You decide 
you're going to undertake this well, book. Where, well, no. The- well, first I go home and I'm bouncing around the internet a little bit, a little bit drunk from the wine. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, okay, you have some answers here, but like, you don't have the answers. And then you get to, you know, I go to the strand, I pick up a couple books there and I go to the public li- the New York public library, which is a great resource for doing all sorts of research. And I pull up some academic articles. And now at that point, at that point, I said to myself, okay, I have notes, I have academic articles, I have books, I have internet research. I'm, I'm just, I'm writing something here and I, I didn't even know it. And that's actually how the book came about was uh, doing all of this essentially book research for a couple of weeks before realizing I had, had even started on the project, you know? That must be a great feeling actually. You're, you're sort of, you know, no, really, because like, you know, it's such a daunting challenge to think you're going to take on something like this and to sort of sit down and go, OK, well, I've done a good portion of the work now. And, you know, you get that foundation. Uh, that's got to be very, very exciting, actually, you know. Well, what's amazing is you're, you know, you could be three months in and then not realize you have another, you know, four and a half years to go. <laughs> <laughs> that's very true. Yeah. yeah. Um, part of also what's made it possible is now the modern resources that you have access to the all the scanned books in google books that are in the library that you can search right the ability to translate things that i would not be able to read or even you know google translate does not do um dialect very well but it, it gets close it gets pretty close and and then maybe you can use that to find more a, a better source to augment what you're you're dealing with so technology was really a big part of it too and this is your first book this is my, my first book, yeah. So tell me then, what's the 30-second elevator pitch of how Italian-American cuisine came to be? And then I kind of want to talk about some of these specifics that get, you know, muddy in the... Sure, in the... sure. So essentially what happens in the 1880s, you have all of these uh, Italians coming from mostly southern Italy who are farmers and peasants and poor laborers who probably ate meat very rarely at home. Um came to the United States, had a lot more money, and then started cooking things the way they perceived wealthy Italians had eaten without ever having eaten at a restaurant or a hotel restaurant or at a wealthy lord's table. And they basically are recreating things from a memory they never really had. And for the first 30 years, 40 years, they're trying to convince other people, uh, non-Italians, to come eat their food. We have a, a golden era in the sort of mid-century. And then uh, by the late 70s, uh, we start getting uh, what a lot of people call authentic Italian or, or termed Northern Italian, kind of replacing that. And sort of the, the golden age of the red sauce joint uh, kind of goes away. And, and a lot of those places are now closing, unfortunately. Yeah, that's a sad, uh, sad reality. I, I find so many like Forlini's in Manhattan closed mm-hmm. two weeks I ago. I can't believe that shut down. And you know what's the, the thing that kills me about this is these red sauce places oftentimes don't get appreciated for being a unique cuisine, right? Mm-hmm. So you get these areas in like cities where there are these wonderful restaurants that are like time travel, right? You're eating mm-hmm. recipes that were created so unique, as the book explains, unique to the Italian-American circumstances and the time and the ingredients. And many of them are not economically suffering, Mm-hmm. Just a lot of work and, you know, the next generation doesn't want to keep going and the, the kids are all, uh, you know, have different careers and nobody wants to. Like Forlini's was not struggling economically. It was a successful restaurant. Just family decided 100 plus years, whatever it's been, mm-hmm. almost 100 years, was just, you know, too much. And, and that's a real loss for us because you, you can 
open the finest new Italian place, and you could open a lot. I mean, I'm seeing all these, like, retro red sauce joints open, like Carbone and these things. But you can't recreate the time machine that exists in some of these places. And it's a loss. It's a loss for the whole community. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, I mean, the fact that two of the red sauce joints in the city that I would go to have closed even before the pandemic hardships that restaurants have, it, it, it really is tragic. You know, I remember writing a chapter on uh, on Parmesan one day, coming home from work after doing that and, and being like, oh, really? I want to go to the that place around the corner and I walk up there and the you know the famous brown paper that goes up on, on storefronts in New York when they close covered it over I'm like oh my god I can't believe that place closed like you know all I want is that that a chicken parm from them right now and you know it was a very what place was that 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 was Trattoria Spaghetto I think it was on Bleecker and Sixth Avenue I think it's amazing how many of these places like those of us who are passionate about this don't even know about you know I mean I mm-hmm. I my wife and I stumbled on a place called Two Toms on my walk back from church. So it's kind of like the Gowanus part of Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. And I, I just like the old vintage signage. And I'm like, oh, let me look at the menu. And it was Italian-American. And it was from, you know, 1940 or whatever. So we decided to go. And sure enough, we just got lucky. It was closing like a week later. And, and it was not, a, again, great local neighborhood place. Everybody loved it. Just had its run. And that was it. And we got to have it. And I thought, man, I walk, must have walked past this. So many times or walked a different street back from church on a Sunday. And sure enough, now I get to see this, you know, gem. Unfortunately, a little bit too late, but we got to enjoy at least one last meal there. And, uh, yeah, I think they're replaceable. They have everything from the tablecloth to the food to the carafes of wine. And it's just kind of a perfect encapsulation. Tell me what you found to be the most important dish to come out of the red sauce tradition. Or at least if not the most important, the most unique American-Italian amalgamation? Wow. Um, yeah, I'm going to defer to one of my personal favorites, which is vodka sauce. And it's a more recent creation, but uh, I think I've very clearly found a source in New York that was the originating restaurant in the, in the 1960s. And what was fascinating about researching Penny Alla Vodka, which is the most common kind of iteration, although you can put vodka sauce on, on literally anything from pizza to rigatoni to spaghetti, you know, whatever you want. Um, but the most interesting thing with that was there were a lot of people who were, who were legitimate sources, who were very credible in, in the way they talked, who placed it in other, other places. So some people put it in Dante's of Bologna, which is a, a nightclub. Um, and, 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 as a stand-in for, oh, this is a thing that developed in the 1970s in discotheques in Bologna, where essentially people would mix vodka, which had just been introduced into Italy as a, as a drink. You know, vodka was not something that Italy really had a lot of before then, um, in, in nightclubs, and that people would get drunk, and then uh, the chef would make up a, a vodka sauce. That was not totally accurate. I'm not saying it didn't happen. I'm not saying there were not people eating vodka sauce in Bologna. And there actually are some historic recipes that would back up that it existed at that point, but it was not the earliest. It was almost certainly the chef in, um, I forget the name of it. That's why I wrote the book, right? Um, (laughs) Who came out with it. And there was an article about his very unique penny olive vodka. And they called it um, olive vodka as he did um, in uh, 1966 or 1967, uh, which predates almost all the others. Sources that were like, 
credibly saying it was some some other place. And that was that to me was a really fascinating one. You know, in part because I love penne al vaca. I, I grew up when my favorite dish at the my local red sauce place was a uh, was actually like a tortellini vodka sauce, which totally mixing of of all of our styles here, right? Like a of tortellini and a more relatively new uh, sauce like that. But I mean, vodka sauce also is maybe the last red sauce that came into existence, so to speak, right? So basically, in the 1970, late 1970s you start getting it uh, being served in restaurants in the tri-state area. Um, there was, I think Joanna's in Manhattan was the first. There's been other Joanna's since then, but um, I think that opened in like uh, 89 or 81 or, or 1980. And so there's a restaurant review talking about the, the vodka sauce. And they call it very unique. So they're talking about it in a way that's like, we haven't had it a lot of other places yet. But within a couple of years, Long Island, Connecticut, all these restaurants in the area are serving vodka sauce. So it's a, it's a sauce that spreads very rapidly. And, you know, of course, it's delicious. It's got cream. It's got the, the vodka, which is really just a way of um, enhancing the flavor. The flavoring is, is carried by the alcohol, essentially. But, you know, you can probably go into any red sauce, any remaining red sauce joint in the country and find a vodka sauce on that menu, which, you know, after that, you're starting to get, like, the northern and, northern and authentic Italian cuisine being an advertisement of, uh, we don't serve that kind of stuff anymore. You know, we're doing this new kind of pasta. So, so it's sort of the, um, it's the last great contribution to the red yeah. sauce. Yeah. The, yeah. The, I never thought of it that way, but that's really fascinating. You know, Pat always talks about the eighties and like the, the mainstream introduction of arugula mm-hmm. and things like that. And this very like nouveau Italian cuisine mm-hmm. that sort of takes over, you know, and it killed the spumoni and the tortoni. <laughs> yeah. It's got all sat, uh, all kind of got the hit. Yeah. You know, it's so funny because we went, the three of us and my wife and some other friends, we went to Rayo's uh, last last week or the week before. And I got to go. Very big deal. I got to go to Rayo's. Very cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. Rosella, who is the queen of red sauce. My my profile raised immediately. <laughs> Family members didn't want to talk to me. Now they're my friends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We had a great night out. We were really lucky. And I, you know, when Joey Chacon, who's the major D in the, if for those who've been there before, Joey sits down with every table and you order family style. He basically tells you what is in the kitchen tonight. And mm-hmm. he was listing through, you know, what we were going to have. And he got to the side dishes. And I, I forget what he said, that broccoli rob or something. And Pat, of course, because Pat's the Wikipedia of Italian America, said <laughs> you serve a lot of scarole anymore. And I found that really interesting because Joey was kind of giving us an insight into what's popular and what's not and what's, you know, where where these trends are. And I never really thought of that, but you got somebody who's been in a very important red sauce place for 20 years, 20 plus years. They've seen that kind of change even in the past 20 years, you know, and, and what what gets ordered and what doesn't. And I, I think escarole and beans is one of those things that you just don't see anymore. You know, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't see it on a lot of menus unless it's a red sauce place. Yeah. I believe he said that broccoli Rob is on its way out. Oh, you think so? Yeah. Yeah, he, that's what he said. He, sa- he says it's cycling out of popularity. Oh, I can believe it because I can find it at the uh, at the Italian grocery store. I can't get it anywhere else. It, it's very hard to find. Wow. Because you can't put it in a kale smoothie. No. <laughs> They're only going to buy smoothie vegetables. Well, b- b- broke it up. I mean, how many people listening to this 
make shkarol and beans as a one plate meal of which it was in the old country. I mean, my wife might do it sometimes. I love shkarol and beans, right? But I think that what's happened is you have Americans who've been habituated to a different way of eating now, which we got to fight, which the Italian Americans have. I don't want to say war. I mean, I don't want, I'm yelled at for being negative, but they're going to kill themselves with a kale smoothie because that has all the good things it's supposed to have. But shkarol and beans, which I can't find, who's going to have a problem with it? Well, but it's a mostly a vegetarian dish, right? There's no, you don't put pork in it, right? If you do no. very no, right? Some so, people do. People in Avellino put um people there's people in their opinion who put uh pork ribs in. I don't though. But this is the point though, right? Of red sauce. It's like 150 years ago, our ancestors were eating only beans and vegetables and occasionally got like a chunk of like fatty sausage, right? And then they come here and their wages go up. They're not taxed on food like they were in Italy. They have access to cheaper food. And then they make things like, you know, a veal parm. And like, I, I tell a story in my book that's coming out in October, Cooking with Nona Sunday Dinners, about like, imagine your Vito who lived in Sicily and you were used to making eggplant parmigiana because there was eggplant all over the place. Mm-hmm. And then you come to America and you have this great factory job and you have access to different cheeses, expensive cheeses. You think these people were eating like fresh mozzarella all the time? They weren't. No. You have access to, to better cheeses, to better meats. And so he sees a good looking piece of chicken and he's like, I could parm that. And mm-hmm. he does. And he mm-hmm. parms everything. Why not? Yep. I'm going to tell you a real, a real story. A neighbor of mine who was a, a dear and beloved friend, Vincent Cantarella, and he was a um, he came from the town of Vatola in the Chilento. He told he's the guy that taught me how to make cheese. And he told me that during the war years, they had. So let's say he was born in Italy in the 30s during the war years and immediately following into the 50s. They had meat three times a year. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Christmas. Easter and Marona de la Grazia, who is the patroness of the town. Mm-hmm. I don't think Americans have any kind of concept of what a treat meat was no. because, you know, you killed the pig once a year, but it all became salted into salami or something else. Mm-hmm. But he said, you know, fresh meat was, was three times a year. And you killed an animal who was old, an animal who couldn't produce milk anymore, or a chicken who couldn't lay eggs. Yep. Well, and then, and then New York, especially 100 years ago, 150 years ago, New York state was a big cow producing milk producing. I mean, we still produce a lot of dairy, but like in essence, we were a cattle producing state. And then uh, part of what happened in the early 20th century was a push towards making beef, uh, veal as well, more available and cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And, and so you bring down that price. So, you know, not only are, are the town immigrants experiencing essentially higher wages, but the ability to, pay less for these foods that they perceive as like you know specialty things that you would only have at christmas are now suddenly every sunday sunday night you know new episodes of old favorites are on media set italia this may a new season of freedom will take you on brand new adventures amazing you with the mysteries of history and nature airing wednesday nights 
Test your smarts with the primetime edition of popular quiz show Avanti Un Altro every Thursday night with host Paolo Bonolis. And don't forget to catch the end of this round of Amici on May 15th and the best of edition on May 22nd. Plus new episodes of Uomini e Donne, Forum, Cotto e Mangiato, Verissimo, and more. Mediaset Italia brings you the best television entertainment from Italian channels Canale 5, Italia 1, and Rete 4. So you'll never miss a moment from Italy. Call your local television provider and ask about Mediaset Italia today. The great Arthur Schwartz, mm-hmm. who wrote um, Naples at Table, I think it was in 1998, yep. has a fantastic, I, I, it was the first book that really nailed an Italian regional cuisine. And he got mm-hmm. Campania. They might be as good, but they'll never be better uh, mm-hmm. compared to the book he wrote. And he said, Italian-Americans ate daily like people in their home country ate on Sunday. They ate on Sunday the way that people ate on a holiday at Christmas. And they ate on Christmas like those people had never eaten before in their lives, maybe at a, you know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because we just had such an abundance. They said there was so much of eel that we as a country produce so much, um, cattle i guess you would say right mm-hmm. and during the golden age during the uh, of the 1880s and 1890s that the city of new york that's why the meatpacking district was where it was mm-hmm. because it was the ending terminal of the railroads and they had all these calves to get rid of you know we were a country that was what that was uh inundated with a level of prosperity the united states had the highest standard of living in the world from 1758 on that's a real statistic mm-hmm. right and so much of that was the the abundance of food here I mean, uh, people in the uh, Italian immigrants, I mean, they got to have food that that a level and a quality of food that was unimaginable to them. I had a client, one of the first ones I ever had, who was born in 1908 in Calabria. And she told me a very interesting story. She said to me, her mother had been born in the United States and had been taken back to Italy as a baby. I said in the 1880s. And her mother died when she was very young. And her father remarried a stepmother who she said was absolutely wonderful to her. And her stepmother came up to her and said to her one day, why are you here? Why don't you pack up your bags and go to America? Your mother was American. Like, they'll let you in. You have American citizenship. Because in America, they eat every day. So I didn't know if it was some kind of, um, I don't know, expression, a, a drama, whatever you want to call it. Whatever. And she said to me, that they were so poor in Calabria, they ate every other day. People with money ate every day. She ate every other day. And her stepmother said, leave, because in America, you'll eat every day. And I just think Italian-Americans have no concept of, of how poor some of these people were. When we do the uh, On the Road series, the Greens from Italian-America with John, you go to some parts, especially regions that were really um, challenged economically, like Basilicata and Calabria, you go to some parts of America where you'll have a small colony of Italian immigrants that came from my Calabria in the 1880s. They have like three dishes, like three different, you know, recipes, because that's all they had in Calabria, because their menus were so limited. You know, they ate the same three or four dishes in a rotation during the week. And I think that, you know, it's hard for us to understand. But, you know, the real the real bastion of ignorance on this subject is in Italy, especially the young people in Italy. They have a twisted view that that Italy's gastronomic day to day life was what they grew up with, which was a, a fairy tale. Mm-hmm. You know, like I said before the war, I mean, I, the same neighbor told me stories that when they were bombing Salerno, there were people in the Cilento and Salerno who were eating grass 
They would go into the fields and eat grass because there was nothing else to eat. You know, it's amazing to think about the deprivation that these people were leaving. And it's an interesting point that Ian makes about the taxes on food after the Risorgimento because the tax regime changed incredibly. And that's a big part of the mass immigration uh, story as well. They had to pay taxes on food they grew in their own gardens. Isn't that crazy? That's crazy, right? Yeah. To me, that's that, that like I've heard stories of people who had to, you know, if they could make bread, they had to take plaster off the walls to thicken the meager flour that they could get. And, um, you know, we think about being aware of the deprivation is one thing, then being aware of the abundance that they come to and the introduction of all of these different, you know, animal proteins that we didn't have and or didn't have access to. And But another thing that I found interesting about your book was a focus on the idea that there was also some things that they did have in Italy and couldn't get here. And I find that really interesting because you developed this real network of what I think of as like heirloom Italian-American brands that were either, you know, importing or eventually producing here. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about some of the ingredients that they couldn't get here that were either brought over or eventually made indigenous in their own way? Well... The first thing that comes to mind is uh, obviously tomatoes, right? Uh, critical to red sauce. Um, in the south of Italy, they were getting two and in some cases, three fresh crops of tomatoes every year, right? They would dry them out, uh, rooftop sun-dried tomatoes. They would make paste. I don't know if you're familiar with this process. They would dry, put them on the rooftops. They'd dry them out. Um, not like a hard sun-dried tomato, like a 1980s salad, but like a... a yeah, a little squishier than that. They would crush them down to paste and then dry it out even further. That was the original tomato sauce. I, I, Ian, my heart glows <laughs> because so many few people know that. And that's why that, and I say gravy, right? But I'm a criminal now because sure. I just got all that went out that, you know, <laughs> it's pasta now. I'm another degenerate because I still say macaroni, but that is who I am. But that is the ragu. The gravy came from Aconserva, which was really the, the tomato paste. Yeah. The jarred tomatoes is, is a later animal. Mm-hmm. Ian, I love this book, Ian. You're killing me. You gotta get this <laughs> kid out for this. 10 episodes. See, you know why? <laughs> Stop right there. I gotta tell him. Because he's from Jersey, John. <laughs> You're best guest at Jersey. Sure. I gotta get that Brooklyn thing <laughs> shoved down my throat, you know, like Brooklyn Superior <laughs> 718. Ian, you're uh, representing yeah. the motherland. Thank you. The two of us could take you both on any day. It's interesting that you brought up the canned tomatoes because canned food overall was a luxury item in the 19th century. And then in South Jersey, you start getting, um, after the Civil War, people start canning food, Campbell's, uh, you might be familiar with them. And New Jersey became a major tomato grower. Uh, And by the time, like 19 teens, uh, the price of canned foods had started to come down. And a lot of that had to do with what was growing in New Jersey and in Maryland and being canned into tomatoes and, and then Italian American or Italian immigrants benefited from that. The amazing thing too, in terms of tomato production in Florida, I think it was 1897, a random farmer planted a couple acres of tomatoes in the middle of winter, essentially put them on a train 18 hours later, they were in New York. They sold the tomatoes at a premium. These were not tomatoes that in 1897 were going to Italian immigrants. It was fresh tomatoes in the middle of winter were being sold at like very fancy hotels. But within a couple of years, like 1900, even like three years later, you had thousands of, of acres being grown of winter tomatoes in Florida being shipped up by train. And that was really the contribution of 
America to the Italian American experience was taking this thing like a tomato that when they first came in the 1880s, you know, New York, Baltimore, Boston, you're, you have a single tomato season, July to August, right? But 10, 15 years later, you're growing tomatoes in Florida and shipping them north on a train all year round. You've got California that's growing tomatoes and shipping them east. And essentially, America is allowing that all year long fresh tomato to be available. Um, and then also industry in America has created a the cheaper and cheaper tomato in a, in a can. Uh, canning costs came way down. And, you know, so even tomatoes, which were essential in the south of Italy, I've heard it compared to um, the potato in Ireland, actually. Uh, it, and in fact, after several uh, famines, tomatoes became increasingly popular, much like potatoes began to replace certain foods in, in Ireland. So a lot of uh, analogies there. Um, anyway, uh, in America, they, even the tomato became a cheaper, a cheaper food for them to, to eat after, you know, some time. One of the things I've always loved is this idea of the paste versus jarred or canned mm-hmm. because my wife's family came over. I guess she's got branches that have been here since the 1800s, but they're northern Italian, those branches. And the rest of her family from Abruzzo came in the 60s. And so when you go to her, my, my wife's constant commentary on my family's food is that it's sort of thick and pasty. Mm-hmm. And my family's been here a long time. Paste is an essential part of everything we cook. And it was early on in our doing the podcast together that Pat brought up this idea that, you know, paste was the the way to get tomatoes before there were tomatoes in this country. And, and it, mm-hmm. it really opened up sort of a whole validity for me, this idea that, oh, yeah, we, we are paste-heavy cuisine and i love that i love that taste i love that texture and it's you know it's definitional to me today industrial tomato production evolves very rapidly and there's like the academic people who do that this research is fascinating is having transitioned you know we talk about the florida tomato 100 years ago was more than a novelty it was like landing on the moon that you could have a, a tomato a fresh tomato in the middle of winter now, of course, you pick a tomato in Florida in the middle of winter, it's hard and green, and then they gas it, and it's it's not really a tomato, right? And actually, I mean, the tragedy today is, unless you are growing your own tomato, or, or maybe you know the farmer who grew it, the best tasting tomatoes are going to be canned, because canned tomatoes, they have it down to a science where they pick them, and six to 12 hours after picking a fresh tomato in the field, if it's going in a can, it's been canned. And so that flavor is perfect, whereas... Almost every tomato you're, you're eating in the grocery store today is going to be picked, if not green, at least possibly not ripe. I fight with people constantly about this because they're, they're like, my sauce is bitter and it's too acidic and, uh, and I have to add sugar or uh, baking soda or something. And I'm like, but, but are you using canned tomatoes? And they're like, yes. And I'm like, this acidity is like in your head. <laughs> like this is something like your nonna told you was true that you have to put sugar in it. You got to put, you got to doctor it all. Like those tomatoes are perfect. They're actually picked at the height of their fr- It's impossible. Yep. They monitor the levels for mm-hmm. acidity. They're looking for it. And then they're also like, and I cook my sauce for four and a half hours. <laughs> like they cook, they're cooking a sauce with no meat in it for four hours. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that that's, hold on. We got to break this down. They're cooking that for four hours. Because they still have the paste mentality. Mm-hmm. They think they have to. Right, correct. But the sugar, I have a different argument with the sugar. I do not think the sugar has anything to do with acidity. Because you know I'm a sicko and I think about this stuff. <laughs> the sugar comes from 
the Italian aristocratic families, they would add sugar. That I, I have gone back. I have found them in two places. I put sugar in. My grand always put sugar in, a teaspoon of sugar in. I found it in Sicily, and I found it in Campania, in Naples, in the coast of Sorrento. And in all times, it's with aristocratic families. So it gives me a further reassurance of my own background <laughs> that I, too, like they put the sugar in, in, the, in, I can't say gravy, right? That's illegal now, right? In the uh, tomato sauce, I make you guys happy, but I put in the gravy. But I think that that's, Ro, I think that people came in like, oh, mom, why do you put sugar? And they're like, because it's acidic. But I don't think that that was true. I think they came here. They didn't know why they put the sugar in. And then they had to come up with an answer. But I flipped out today. I, I, this is we tell these we know like we tell stories before we come on. And then John says, shut up and save it for the show. <laughs> I was in an Italian deli, not deli, an Italian import store in northern New Jersey today. And I asked the lady for ammonica, which is a uh, baking ammonia. And that's a whole other episode. And she goes, no, you could use bicarbonato. I says the same thing. I went berserko. Like, they are not the same thing. We got to create <laughs> cheat sheets. Ba- bicarbonato is baking powder. Why don't Ian, what's the next book? Could you call it the Italian American cheat sheet? This is why you do it in <laughs> Because people got to know, like, yes, this is why you boil it for four hours because your great grandmother used cans of paste. This is why ammonia is different than baking powder. You must educate our people. Like, you're like a gospel writer. You wrote Matthew. Now we need Mark, Luke, and John. <laughs> well, you want to have your mind blown about sugar? Is in uh, Florence, in the Renaissance, uh, sugar, refined sugar was, was introduced to Italy into the, the high, the, the wealthy houses. They used to do a pasta with sugar and butter. Cinnamon was very popular. I've heard of this. Um, some people even make like pastina like this for kids. Mm-hmm. Well, I've been meaning to try it. I, I think it would be better with fresh made pasta rather than a, a macaroni. The, the best pastita, there's a phenomenal pastita that you make with spaghetti. Thank you, because I'm intermittent fasting today. John, <laughs> John does. Eric Uchega. John goes, what day can I have a food conversation? <laughs> All right, three no. o'clock, four o'clock. I'm on 24 hours with no food. Thank you, John. I'm about <laughs> to chew did... my paw off now, my hand. I'm sorry. I keep quiet. I did a lot of I did a lot of lunches where I was on my fast. Yeah, but uh... you, that was that was ridiculous. That yeah. that fast. Can, he was on like K rations, a tin tin of tuna. <laughs> I gained all that weight back. The, the arugula, nothing on it. Ridiculous. You couldn't even use chapstick. No, I couldn't. I that I I did a great job on that. Lost thirty pounds. I've gained twenty back. So I'm I'm living. We got the baby. I'm living my life now. I'm eating. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, John. Yeah. yeah. But it's interesting that like cinnamon and sugar, you know, those were massive, uh, especially in the noble classes and in the you know the church. They, they were the salt and pepper kind of of uh, medieval cuisine, right? That mm-hmm. idea of sort of like you know you look at the Sicilian agro dolce, the sweet and sour. A lot of that comes from the fact that the Sugar was introduced at that period, and so was combining it with vinegar and creating sweet and sour and a lot of these flavors that come with us here into the U.S. Well, historically, that was also when you're starting to cook pasta or macaroni in a way that's very modern, which is to say boiled in water. I mean, they were still doing it for half an hour to an hour, maybe longer, um, and you're getting very soft things. But up until that point, a lot of like a lasagna noodle was very commonly baked in a liquid. Uh, so like often milk, but you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't like boil some water, throw in some pasta and then 15 minutes later, serve it with, with anything, uh, or, or 10 minutes later or five minutes later, it would, it would be a long, a long boiled, uh, 
situation. So you, the modern conception of boiling water and pasta is really 150 years old, um, 200 years old. Uh, there's a moment where, where spaghetti and tomato sauce are mentioned together for the first time. And it's only about, well, first of all, spaghetti, the term spaghetti is only about 250 years old. And then spaghetti and tomato sauce is only like uh, 200 years old. Well, hopefully it's pretty obvious that we have really been enjoying this conversation with Ian. And I can't think of a better place to pause than the fortuitous meeting of the tomato and spaghetti, which uh, I think unparalleled in the annals of culinary history if you're Italian-American. And this conversation will keep going for about an hour. So we're going to split this episode into two. And hopefully you guys have enjoyed this conversation as much as we have. The book is Red Sauce, How Italian Food Became American. And we hope that you've had a great time. You're going to come back next week and hear part two of this wonderful episode. So thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week with part two. You're born in Italiano, and your life will be great. See that you're born in Italiano.